Welcome everyone um, to this evening's Sport and Leisure History Seminar. Um, I'm delighted to say that we've got Lisa Taylor with us this evening, um, who is a PhD candidate at um, Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, working on the history of women's rowing. Um, and her paper this evening is entitled Revival, Recalibration, Radicalism, Reflecting on Women's Amateur Rowing in the Long 1960s. Over to you, Lisa. Thanks, Raph. Um, clearly a, a bit of a fan of alliteration there. It sounds, sounds quite different right now than it does to read on the screen. Um, I think most of you know me anyway. Um, just to um, highlight, I suppose, uh, that my PhD is a collaborative doctoral partnership, which is funded by the AHRC. So Manchester Metropolitan University are my academic home, but I also have a foot in the River and Rowing Museum at Henley-on-Thames. Um, and which is a really, uh, I'd say, a really brilliant platform to be doing research on. Um, so I guess that's a plug for anyone listening to the podcast. Um, so what I'm going to be presenting today is the products of research that I've been doing both in the archive at the museum um, and through oral histories that I was doing during the second year of my PhD. Um, and I'm interested in this period um, in the long 1960s because I think it's a real period of flux. Um, and the idea that um, these perhaps conflicting ideas of revival, of recalibration and of radicalism um, are kind of threads that run throughout all of that. Um, I struggle with the, the kind of easy characterisation of the 60s as kind of all swinging, all dancing and a bit more conservative I suppose um, and I see evidence of change but it being quite tentative or a bit more localised so even though you see changes in terms of legislation and that kind of stuff but actually, in terms of cultural impact, that's still quite limited at this point. Um, so the main focus today will be on how we might understand women's sports in the 1960s better um, and how basically this melting pot of a decade um, played out in rowing. Um, so changes in the expectations of amateur sport more widely, not only for women. Um, so changes in what both men and women might expect of women in terms of gendered norms um, in sport and in life, really, and how all of that might intersect. Uh, so let's crack on. Um, in terms of women's rowing, uh, years after World War II had been uh, what I would call a process of revival. Um, and used that quite uh, intentionally as a, an indication really that it was much more about reinstigating stuff that had already been um, in place before the war rather than thinking a bit more creatively about how to um, kind of start sport afresh, I suppose, in, that, uh, in the late 1940s and early 50s. It's almost like if the wheels had come off during the war, it was just sticking the wheels back on and getting the machine rolling again, um, rather than taking stock and approaching it with a bit more, um, I don't know, with kind of fresh ideas. And some of that, I think, is that the administration was a lot of the same women, um, a lot of the same people were responsible for reviving the sports as had been in charge of it before. Um, and I think that is a little bit different in the men's sports, um, which was prompted into slightly more, I would say, for the ARA kind of radical decision making, um, certainly in terms of relaxing a very strong impulse to segregate by class, I think that does start to change after the Second World War. Um, for women though, one of the interesting things coming into the 60s was that despite um, this domestic continuity that I'm talking about, then the international sporting landscape was changing around them. So sanctioned uh, women's internationals started taking place in the early 1950s. So British women were not only competing against foreign opposition, which um, they had in some ways, but not in formalised internationals earlier, um, but also gaining exposure to different um, 
approaches to sport, notably through Eastern Europe, where the models are quite different. So I'm focusing on the domestic, but this international exposure that's going on in the background is obviously really influential on the domestic sport, and so really important to consider. <coughs> Um, and actually gives a, at the start of this period, so actually in 1960, gives me quite a neat segue into, uh, into looking at this because in 1960 then Britain hosts the Women's European Championships. Um, perhaps surprisingly in Wilsdon, I uh, don't know if those of you, I don't know how familiar you are with London, but Wilsdon's kind of in a sandwich between Wembley Stadium and Wormwood Scrubs. Um, Henley it is not, but um, for better and worse, let's say. But, um, but it was an international standard course for women uh, because women were still only racing over one kilometre, men over two. Um, England, Britain, um, which for the ARA I would say were almost the same thing at this point, um, didn't have a 2K course. Um, and so having uh, access to the what was called the Welsh Heart Brent, um, Brent Reservoir in Wilsdon um, was actually quite a, um, a unintended benefit of women only racing a shorter course than, than the men were racing. And there was some hostility towards hosting this. Um, you can see the chair of the ARA um, there, J.H. Page, um, he publicly acknowledges some of that critique. Um, but he was quite optimistic. Um, and this idea of the cautious path of progression that he talks about um, I think it's quite apt of how he and um, certain more progressive factions of the ARA were operating at that point. Um, I should say as well, he was one of two key figures um, involved in uh, breaking down one of the class barriers that had kind of plagued the ARA, which was integrating a different male governing body for amateur rowing uh, about 10 years previously. Um, that had required a lot of politicking, if you like, around class as well. Um, and I will say that the issues around class were more, certainly in terms of column inches, were more vocally and more um, lengthily discussed than integrating the women at this point. Feel free to ask me about that later on. Um, just sticking with Wilsdon for a little bit, some of the athletes that I've interviewed in the course of oral histories, um, on balance, weren't thrilled about Wilsdon as a venue. <laughs> uh, baffling. Um, so for some it was just that it was the loss of a trip overseas. Um, for one, uh, Penny Tutor at the top there is the fact that also it wasn't the Olympics. Um, she had the, the misfortune of a coach who told her that if she changed from skiffing to sculling that she would be able to represent Britain at the Olympics. Um, not having done his due diligence and realising there weren't in fact women's events at the Olympics in the sport of rowing at this point. Um, so she found out that not only wasn't she going to the Olympics, but in fact uh, she was just going down the road to Wilsdon. Um, but... Being local actually had opened the opportunity up to a lot more women than ordinarily would have been able to compete. So even if it's a less glamorous option than the Rome Olympics, that actually um, did mean that it was the first and only time that Britain fielded a full women's team in the European Championships. Um, partly because it cost less, obviously, partly because they had money coming in from the ARA and from um, Wilsdon Borough Council, who seemed to have been incredibly supportive of this event. Um, but also, um, in a couple of cases, then, um, so the double skull, for example, both the women had young children, and interviewing one of them, she said that she wouldn't have been able to leave the child for a period, a series of days to go overseas, but actually she could go to the venue during the day, go back home at night, then actually that meant, that made the difference, that meant she was able to compete in a way she wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So the financial bit is definitely, it is really important, but it's not the only thing. Um, 
as well as some hesitations about this uh, about it being local, the athletes also suggested that relatively few people have come to spectate. Um, poor old Pauline up here, I don't know if you've read this yet on the screen, um, she says even her parents didn't come to watch because they had holiday books and so decided just to do that instead. Um, and that there was a feeling that nobody was really interested. And this was one of the reasons that um, the chair of the ARA page that I was talking about before, one of the defences he had to put up was a lot of people saying, why bother, what's the point? Um, there is a report though that I want to flag up here which um, goes a little bit or takes it in a slightly different direction. Um, so this is in Rowing Magazine, um, which also identified more logistical reasons um, for the limited appeal perhaps of the event. Um, firstly, you can see the reasons um, uh, why the women's sport is, why it's um, claimed that the women's sport is okay. It's a top class event. Uh, that's a fairly regular caveat on the women's sport. They're going to look competent um, and it's not going to be horrific to watch. You're not going to be seeing women making fools of themselves in boats. Um, and you can see the use of the word elegant here. I should say I don't think that's as loaded with regard to gender as it might seem. Um, in rowing, amateur rowing, I should say, for men as well, then this idea of elegance and the aesthetics of the sporting performance, all of that stuff had been um, really, really important, even if that was starting to change by this point. Um, the comparison with other sports, so show jumping, skating, again, quite instructive. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. Um, but the final point is maybe where I should spend a bit more time. Um, fine, using the word noggin is always going to be a winner with me. But it makes a really valid point, and not one that I see very often with regard to the women's sport, and that is that attendance might not only be bad because people don't want to watch women do the sport, but don't find the experience of spectating as distinct from that enjoyable. Um, and the two are replaced, I think. The quality of the sporting performance is going to have an impact on how much you enjoy the social occasion. But really, they're saying if you don't have a good beer tent, then why are people going to go? And I actually think that's a, in terms of generating numbers of spectators, good weather, a good beer tent, a bacon roll, like those things do actually matter. And this is a community, the women's rowing community, that don't, um, that are not at this point invited to race at the big men's regattas, whether that's Henny Royal, which is a whole separate animal, but the other big ones that um, do get, get big uh, numbers in terms of spectators. This isn't a world that they move in. Um, so anyway, uh, I think that's kind of an important point to make about the spectatorship. Um, I position holding this event as quite a political move from the ARA, um, less so the women's ARA. Um, historically, the ARA being very conservative um, and predicated really on middle and upper class understandings of sporting performance and sociability, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that that was quite fundamentally different from the women's. Um, and I've done some research that suggests that the women's rowing administration, certainly in the interwar period, was much more um, mixed socially than that, um, than the male counterparts. Uh, by this point, the point is that more progressive factions of the ARA see a need to integrate the men's and the women's sports, but didn't feel that women's rowing was a convincing cultural fit. Um, and that to host this event uh, was one way to um, address their problem of being the lame ducks in international rowing and by doing so to make the value of women's sport within the male sport more evident. Um, so the two uh, the men's and women's rowing associations do merge um, 
on paper seems fairly equitable, but it's worth saying that the revenue from the women's rowing association is very, very small. So saying that they're not going to, um, pledging to allocate all of the resources from women's rowing to women's rowing is a very minor concession. That's not, uh, in terms of where the money actually is within the, within the groups, that's, um, uh, whether it's true or not, is kind of academic, um, talking about very small amounts of money. Um, but this was felt to be beneficial on both sides. Now, the, there used to be a, a magazine for the Women's Amateur Rowing Association that was just for the women's sport. Um, that had folded by this point, um, and I haven't got minutes from the WARA from this period, um, and none of the women that I've interviewed were administrators at this point, in part because, like I said, a lot of them were kind of the previous generation. Um, the w women who were in the administration at that point uh, were already, um, well, they would be too old for me to interview them now, but that, put it that way. Um, basically, I don't have any juicy archive about what, how this negotiation actually, what took place, I only have what's been published. Um, Ooh, I'll just stick on that for a little bit longer. Um, at, uh, just on the second point here, um, you can see that it's quite a, it's fairly optimistic, um, but very patriarchal in tone. It's understood that very properly the proposal came from the men. Um, and the same article refers to women's rowing as a Cinderella sport. Um, for any of you that are um, into your fairy tales, maybe that's implying, you know, hardworking, unfairly oppressed, all of that kind of stuff. More readily, I'd say, it suggests um, powerless until being rescued in quite a chivalrous fashion. Um, so you've got this, uh, I suppose, kind of a double vision, what you're saying. There's value in the women's sport. We want to move it forward. We want to have um, a carpet place for it in the men's sports or to let those two align. On the other hand, let's kind of reinforce this um, quite familiar gendered hierarchy of power. Um, which doesn't really allow much agency to the women in the equation. Um, in some respects, I think that serves the end goal of amalgamation well. It reduces threats, all of that kind of stuff, but to the detriment, I would say again, of the agency of the women involved. Um, one thing that is noticeable throughout the, the, this period, the long 1960s, compared to the years before, is a more public dialogue around gender and sport. Um, there is some sense of... Um, arguments about women, women's participation in the sport as being a bit outdated um, and that features quite often this idea that surely we're past this idea that women can't be doing this kind of stuff anymore. Um, and I already mentioned that the Oarswoman and the, the mouthpiece I guess for women's rowing had folded um, and this kind of leads to more reports and correspondence being focused in, in one place in rowing magazine. And you start seeing a much wider range of voices, both male and female, starting to kind of weigh in on that debate. Um, and that magazine certainly prints more material essentially in support of women's rowing than, um, than against it. And when you do have critiques, then they generally provoke quite lengthy uh, responses kind of in terms of uh, answering the critiques they put forwards, both from men and from women. A um, couple of quite text-heavy slides coming up, so bear with me. Um, just want to really look at how the support for the women's sport is being articulated, because this is kind of at the crux of what I'm trying to argue, I suppose. Um, straight off, you can see um, this idea of being outdated. 
um, talks about the days being long past when these sports were considered unladylike, all this kind of stuff. But although it is defending rowing for women, it makes clear that there's still an imperative for women's sport to be fitting. Um, fitting might mean graceful rather than brutal. You know, these finely tuned, poised bodies in synchro, not rough and tumble of football. Um, the second point, the second quote down here as well, this idea that um, women's rowing is absolutely fine, but wrestling is basically horrendous. What, you know, let's, let's not go too far here, chaps. Like, rowing's fine, but um, there are limits to what women should be doing in sports. And you can see again that you're, you defend female participation in terms of being better equipped to deal with the, the finer points of the sport rather than delivering what we might think of as um, really sweaty athletic performances. So to me, these, these ideas read quite Victorian. Um, for those of us working in women's sports, quite familiar with the idea that things like Swedish gymnastics, for example, was more acceptable than hockey, for example, in the late 19th century. Um, because of control, because of um, sense of grace, because of being within your own limits. And I'm really not saying that there's that this is a straightforward replication. Things have changed by this point. Um, Victorian norms definitely would have been less comfortable with fitness, for example, with running. Um, probably wouldn't the word wrestling, I doubt, even would have featured in a conversation about amateur sport. But my point isn't that nothing has changed, but the, the arguments mobilised to challenge and defend female participation were, in fact, very similar. Um, and in these arguments, rejecting participation in rowing is actually to do rowing a disservice. So if you understand what rowing is about, rowing is about grace, it's about elegance, it's about all these things that ladies do, that's all fine. What's the problem? Hmm. <laughs> I have some, some views on what the problem with that might be, but <laughs> so be it. Um, these two points are a little bit different, so they point more towards women's psychological and social abilities to participate in amateur sport. Um, the physical superiority of male rowers is left unquestioned. Um, incidentally, that's something you see some constructed quite differently in the 1970s, um, where the direct physical challenge and absolute physical challenge um, is more kind of laid down. Um, but you can see the point is about self-improvement, about trying your best. Um, all this old school amateur stuff, really, it's not about the winning, it's about turning up with the right attitude, um, delivering sport in the way that we all understand that sport should be played and performed. Um, and one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that this is something that in this period is very much up for debate in the men's sport. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction with this kind of anachronistic or parochial view of the sport, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with largely losing internationally within the, win within the men's sport, sorry. Um, and and I, find, I find it fascinating that that's the, those are the kind of discourses that um, some of the women mobilise in order to defend their participation in the sport as well. So you can see up here, uh, Pauline Bailey Reynolds, um, quite a dominant figure in women's rowing around this time and certainly in the next, uh, well, for probably another 20 years after that. Um, <clears throat> but she, so she, at this point, she is captain of United University's um, women's, rowing, uh, women's boat club. Uh, it's quite a, uh, as it suggests, it's university women that have come out of the universities and then kind of carry on racing together. Um, and this quote comes in response to one of the um, fairly few, but it's a fairly rip-roaring negative commentary on the women's sport that got printed in the magazine. And here, um, PBR, as she was known, is responding um, to some of the claims that were made in that article. 
Um, what she does though is to articulate the purpose and the practice of the women's sport um, in this, she's massively entrenching herself in amateur rhetoric. Um, this idea that physical exercise, yes, it has health as aspect. It's a way of getting rid of superfluous energy. It's a way of um, effectively ensuring better bodily control. Talks about enormous pleasure of, of perfect timing, all of this stuff. This could have been written in the late 19th century for men. Um, and so this is the language and the ideas that, that she's choosing to use to defend um, women's participation in the sport. And this is important because while this would have been an important kind of gendered barrier to break, even within the men's sport, this was now more problematic. Um, and it feels to be aligning itself with a breed of male amateurism that was already starting to die out or certainly to face much stronger challenge within the men's rowing community. Um, in a sense, to me, it feels a bit like the women's rowing community starting to learn and kind of appropriate a language that's becoming um, obsolete within the men's rowing community. Um, and to, just to emphasise that, um, or to, I suppose, illustrate this idea of um, where the men's rowing community was at this point, um, <coughs> this is um, bless you. Uh, a couple of years later, then there's um, a fairly lengthy ar article which talks about how the day of the amateur is passing. We've played at being amateurs for too long. We need to get our act together. We need to do some training. We need to start thinking about physical performance rather than just um, sociability within class, really. Let's take a, a step back, just I suppose to summarise what I've been talking about. Um, I think this idea that the public position of women's rowing at this point, laying so much emphasis on amateur um, ideals, one of the reasons for this, I think, is that the men's sport is moving towards these more scientific models and scientific ideals. Um, and at this point, again, in contrast to the 1970s, um, there's no appetite or interest within the women's rowing community of trying to challenge strength and fitness in absolute terms. The other is I think is probably a genuine indicator of the view of a part of the women's rowing community um, because in this period then actually the dominance of the United Universities is very strong. Um, a lot of the women that are going to race internationally are um, from relative backgrounds of privilege not least because there's no resources to support um, trips overseas and so on to compete so actually the women that have the opportunity to go more so than previously tend to come from a more privileged background um, and three of the women that I interviewed um, illustrate that point um, these three competed multiple times over the period uh, Margaret Christine and Penny um, two had come to Rome through university the other um, Penny Tudor hadn't she was from a I think it's fair to say a middle-class background um, and went on subsequently to become a very important figure in British rowing subsequently so she's she's a special case for quite a lot of reasons um, but all three of these women um, emphasized their enjoyment of the sport um, and for two of the university women um, the expectation of sport and international competition was clearly that they should form part of a wider set of interests and pursuits, including their education, importantly, and subsequently their work, which also was in education. Both of them expressed strong commitment to the elements of a rowing career that reflected traditional amateur norms and values, the love for the sport, training and moderation, sociability and life experience. They both enjoyed the opportunity to travel um, and that kind of stuff. Margaret, in particular, claimed not to be too concerned with winning. 
again, quite a classic amateur trope. I'm never too sure that we can say that as easily as we tend to do. I'm sure there are plenty of amateurs that really did want to win, even if they knew they had to say it didn't matter to them. And she may well fall into that category as well. Um, she repeatedly, or she, she emphasised that actually her crew were very fast compared to the domestic competition. By British standards, they were kind of the fastest around at the time. Um, and she emphasised enjoyment, satisfaction, and sense of control, really, of how she was going about competing in the sport as being really key to her um, experience of the sport. If, she, if they'd been interested in winning, she suggests, they wouldn't have kept going back to compete. And that... Uh, sorry, and she also suggests that the more recent models at this point uh, that they were coming into contact with through Eastern Europe... Um, and that later have come into play in Great Britain, um, those which prioritise winning at the expense of all of that stuff would actively have turned her off. And that's, again, a fairly regular feature of the oral histories that I've um, conducted, that a lot of the women that are in this kind of early earlier amateur um, period, certainly pre-lottery, a lot of them look to the post-lottery world and say, well, that wouldn't have been for me. That's not what I was looking for. Um, I wouldn't have signed up for that. Now... Penny Tudor, like I said, later um, a very important figure in British rowing and coaching, she was a little bit different. Um, she too expressed an authentic love of the sport, perhaps more so than the others in terms of the, uh, I guess we might say from, like phenomenologically, the experience of being in the boat, of moving it, of being on the water. That for her actually was probably stronger than for anyone else that I interviewed. But she also loved physiology, she loved training, she's real um, data head, she loves the nuts and bolts. Um, and she did train with really exceptional dedication and resourcefulness in her career as an athlete. But you can see that she too remained critical of the more professionalised models of training that she was observing overseas. Um, training hard for her was compatible with an amateur ideology. She didn't need to be a cabbage, basically, if you're looking at the last quote. Um, that there was something about the British approach to sport that was still fundamentally different, that training hard didn't need to mean that you switched off your mind and you stopped engaging at an amateur level. So for me, what she's talking about here actually aligns more with the um, emerging male amateur discourses in this period than the women's, where the women seem to be entrenching themselves in old-school amateurism. Men are starting to say, actually, let's look at physical training. They'd appointed a national trainer by this point. Um, and there's more discussion about how to how to go faster rather than how to be better sports. Um, Penny also, I guess in a similar kind of a vein, um, had far more interaction with male rowers, coaches and with men's rowing than most of the other narrators that I spoke to. Um, she claims not to have uh, not to recall any negative commentary about women's rowing, um, at least I quote not personally. Um, but without prompting, she did rationalise this through the specifics of her upbringing and, and indeed her practice of the sport. So if you read this, again, sorry it's so text-heavy, but I'm kind of interested in the language of it. Um, you can see that a perception of prejudice is really embedded in, this, in the narrative that she presents against groups of women, against sweep or rowers. Uh, so for those of you that aren't rowers, that's one stick rather than two. Um, and against women that were not part of an established social circle, so her friends down on the Bowway Reach. There's masses to unpack there, and um, we can come back to this later if you'd like to. For now, I suppose, just want to highlight that while she herself um, may have felt insulated from critique, she does implicitly acknowledge that it was there. She just doesn't choose to engage with it in the story of the sport that she wants to present. 
Now, again, Penny is exceptional in just about every way. Um, she was also exceptional in terms of the success she achieved. She, was, uh, she won a silver medal in the Europeans, um, which was a first at that point and was uh, remained uh, un or unmatched for, I think, another best part of another 20 years. Um, in person, she was very modest about the extent to which her athletic talent might have facilitated her acceptance into male rowing communities. Although she did identify it as a legitimating factor in some contexts, like here, um, she tells a story about travelling to a regatta with a university men's eights and how having won that actually they decided to chat to her on the way back. Um, and that's one, I think that's, a chat on the way home is one thing. Um, another story she told actually, for me, was the more remarkable. Um, and that is that um, she was given access to Leander Rowing Club. Now, Leander, um, <laughs> James is laughing because he <laughs> understands the tenor of Leander Rowing Club, um, was, and I'd argue in some ways still is, one of the most conservative um, bastions of men's amateur rowing in Britain. Um, they do have a women's section, they're very proud of their women's section now, that is a recent development um, and I would say that the legitimacy of success in that environment is a, a very strong thread. Um, so the exception made for her in the 1960s to me feels quite um, significant, quite striking. So she attributes this to um, a rowing colleague of hers, I guess, Stuart Mackenzie, and she travelled with him a lot, raced overseas with him a lot. Um, he was a fellow international scholar, regular kind of companion in racing. Um, so when she says, uh, towards the bottom, she says, oh, we'll just keep him quiet, that's the him that's involved. Um, but she also, again, emphasised that she was only one person, um, that she could be kept at a slight remove, her boat's out in the garden, uh, she could change in the ladies' powder room. Um, so all of this could kind of happen without, and if you'll excuse the pun, without rocking the boat. <laughs> that this isn't asking Leander to open their doors exactly to women's rowing, it's just allowing her to keep her boat in the garden and she's just one person, she's going to be on the water most of the time anyway. Um, I think I've kind of said this already, but as an international medalist I'd also suggest that her success definitely um, made that an easier sell to some of the, the older guard within Leander. Um, There's still, still a club that's unashamedly focused on excellence um, and so I think her medal definitely would have given her some credibility. Sticking with personal connections a little bit longer, um, and this is a thread that goes through pretty much the whole um, of the research that I've done from the 1940s through to, more or less through to present, certainly to the 1990s. Um, Penny talks a lot about being able to mobilise the support that she needed rather than accepting that ex existing provision was either lacking or just non-existent. Um, so weight training here is one example. Um, but this, in different contexts, in contexts, sorry, whether that's coaching, um, access to resources, whatever it might be, that actually she, um, the process of negotiating and finding what she needed without it being um, offered or without it being within any particular structures was quite a recurrent feature, um, not only of hers but very strongly in hers. Um, and this for me is one area where oral history, I think, as a methodology, really comes into its own, in part for explaining how a lack of um, formal provision doesn't necessarily mean a lack of opportunity, um, but also being able to engage in what practising the sport in that way might mean. Um, so personal networks characteristics, um, 
you could say can supersede administrative or institutional barriers, I suppose. Um, and all the women I interviewed seemed to agree that social connections with male rowers off the water were really important in facilitating understanding and acceptance. And again, I'd say that at this point, then, I think throughout that, I think right through to the end of the 1960s, pretty much every rowing club is still segregated by sex. There are very, very few. There might be a couple towards the end of the 1960s that do, that are mixed. The overwhelming majority are still segregated. It's also true of events, um, very few races. A few more after the ARA and the women's ARA merged, started having women's races at men's regattas um, and vice versa, in fact. But the majority, these are still separate spheres. Um, and I think that kind of, this idea that the social connections facilitated better mutual understanding, better relations between men's and women's rowing, the fact that most of the structures were so segregated was kind of entrenching prejudice rather than developing understanding between the communities more broadly. And I think it's indicative that Penny, when she came into her administrative roles and coaching, um, was unequivocal about wanting to build a more mixed-sex sporting community in rowing. Um, by the same token, though, formal structures could, of course, function as a safety net. So it's all well and good saying that personal connections, you know, being the right place, the right time, asking the right people, there is real value in that, but obviously, by the same token, the absence is detrimental. And this had implications not only in broad terms of social tolerance and sanction, but also, for example, in employment. So Margaret, one of my other interviewees, um, you can see here an example that kind of shows both sides of that. Um, so Margaret um, was fortunate that um, having been denied basically the, the ability or not straightforwardly being given the opportunity to go and, and take one of the opportunities to race internationally, on escalating her request from her immediate manager, she was quite fortunate that it fell on a more sympathetic ear. Um, and in fact, she ended up with a much more positive outcome than she'd hoped for. But in absence of a rowing blue behind the desk or one who was less on board with the women's sport, um, there were plenty of rowing blues behind various desks, let's face it. But um, if, she's, if it had fallen on deaf ears, her course of action would have been quite unclear because there wasn't the same formal structural way of, um, of recourse, really, um, had she not been able to go. So again, lots we could unpack there. Um, Feel free to ask me about that in the discussion. Um, but what I want to highlight is that the number, while the number of women in the right time, in the right place to enjoy those personal acts of support um, was very small, um, that in those cases, it, it was positioned very much as it just being a favour, helping someone out, lending a hand, kind of greasing the wheels. And looking at those individual interactions, distinct from published reports from correspondence and documentation that we tend to find in the archive that there's a sense that pursuing the sport as a woman or facilitating women's participation as a man wasn't a political statement it was limited yes it was finite it was flawed there's all kinds of problems with it um, but for the women telling their stories to me it seems to have been sufficient none of my interviewees positioned themselves as discriminated against none of them really talked about any prejudice um, and none of them adopted argumentative or radical positions. One thing I think we might want to think about is the extent to which that's a function of retrospective narrative of the story being told to me specifically at this point. Um, and again, something that I find really fascinating about oral history is, is that kind of double vision again of who they 
were at the time, who they might be now and how they choose to mediate those two things in, in talking to, to someone else about it. Um, and I suppose what I would say is that the story I believe they want told is that it wasn't a radical position, that it didn't need to be radical, that actually they could get what they needed without taking the more um, strident positions, if you like, that you see coming out in the 1970s. Um, and again, the tenor of the oral histories that I collected from later athletes, certainly in the 1970s and the early 80s, um, the tenor of those is markedly different from what I came across throughout this period. Um, to start wrapping up then, uh, I've been arguing that a lot of the assumptions underpinning the revival of the women's sport after the war were feeling dated, um, also true in the men's, but differently. Um, that the perceived purpose of the sporting body uh, or the um, athletic body in rowing, as distinctly, um, were more variously contested by more people, whether that's in legislation, in sporting administration, or uh, more informally in localised debates in rowing magazine. Within women's rowing specifically, um, the, uh, the amalgamation of women's and men's uh, rowing uh, administration, sorry, the effects of those I think were initially quite subtle, but I would say were kind of an important stepping stone towards wider reform of the women's sport. And I, Raph, from talking to you earlier on as well, I suspect we might want to talk more about the co-opting of women's sports and sporting administrations. Um, you might not want to talk about that, but um, <laughs> I'd be up for that if you are. Because um, I think rowing is quite an interesting case in that regard. Um, and I suppose to compress decades of history into a pretty simplistic summary, um, I feel like throughout this period there's a sense of having one foot in the past and justifying um, female physical uh, performance, athletic performance, um, in these established um, discourses, I suppose, mainly old school male amateurism, and the other foot kind of in the future or kind of mid-air stepping towards a future that isn't quite yet decided, both within the sport and within society. Um, and this is clear both in terms of how the sport was talking about itself and how women perceived of their position within it. I said at the beginning that voices from the athletes in the 1970s tended to be much more strident, more provocative, um, and less willing to accept the sporting and cultural legacies that, that disadvantaged them, that had disadvantaged them, and would continue to do so. And looking at the patterns that emerged through this period, I think that's in part because the two camps, this kind of the old guard, this conservative, um, the, the old school, if you like, and more radical feminist ideologies both become more entrenched, that you have a more solid position to, um, to stand in, but also to kind of rail against. Uh, and that this period, I suppose, is the point at which those things are starting to crystallise on both sides, but still very much in flux. Um, so I'm going to stop talking and uh, hear from some of you guys, please. Um, ask me anything you want, and I will do my best to respond. <laughs> And we're back. Uh, that was a great paper by Lisa. And if you want to hear the Q&A, it will be um, following uh, my discussion with Jeremy Lonsdale, who is the speaker at our next, on our next podcast. And um, I'm delighted to chat to Jeremy, um, who will be giving his paper on the early history of Yorkshire cricket. Um, 
Jeremy, when I tweeted about your paper, I mentioned uh, Lord Hawke as one being one of the big beasts of early Yorkshire cricket, and of course people will know him most famously as running MCC for quite some decades. Uh, but I understand you're going beyond Lord Hawke in your exploration of Yorkshire cricket. Yeah, that's right. Um, my, my book, um, A Game Taken Seriously, uh, The Foundations of Yorkshire's Cricketing Power, um, I mean, it does, it does include um, discussion of Lord Hawke, uh, and Lord Hawke is clearly a key figure. But the focus of the book really is, uh, is much wider than that, and it's on the way in which the game developed from the, the, from the early 1820s in Yorkshire, um, right through to 1893, and, and the reason for those two dates are 1822 is when the first uh, commercial ground uh, was opened in Yorkshire in Sheffield, and 1893 is when Yorkshire won the county championship. And between those two um, years, that period of 70 years, there's just a huge amount of growth uh, in the game uh, in Yorkshire. And, and Hawke does, in the end, uh, he's captain of Yorkshire at the end in 1893. Um, but uh, he's building on and taking advantage of all the developments that have taken place uh, during that period, the way in which the game um, grows, the way in which leagues begin, um, the way in which lots of real sort of serious professional cricketers start to emerge uh, in the course of the 1860s, 1870s and so on. Um, so Hawke is important, but the game is much more than that in Yorkshire. That's really interesting. So you might almost see it as, um, as a kind of a... Uh, a parallel with wider society where all of these people are spontaneously uh, generating new ways of earning a living during the 19th century um, and then the aristocracy takes the credit. Well I mean you're, you're absolutely right and in fact the book, uh, the, the book is broken up into, into, into chapters and uh, one of the chapters is about the, uh, the development of, uh, of professional uh, players and the way in which people made the grade. Um, there's also chapters about the way in which um, club cricket grew up, uh, the way in which it was financed, uh, the role of the press uh, in, in popularising the sport. And also there's a chapter which I sort of call the place of cricket in, in, in Yorkshire. And that's really just about how the game sort of permeated society, how it sort of uh, became part of the, uh, the sort of, you know, the life of so many people. Um, so um, whether the aristocracy sort of take advantage of that I'm not sure I mean they certainly uh, Hawke was captain and uh, president of Yorkshire so uh, so clearly and there are others like Lord Lonsborough who's a really important figure um, but what I'm really particularly interested in I guess is grassroots cricket mm -hmm. and how that how that sort of uh, the power of the uh, uh, of grassroots cricket builds up uh, in the 19th century mm -hmm. and uh, makes Yorkshire the sort of sporting force that it was in the 20th century. Oh, great. And you mentioned the Association of Cricket Historians and Statisticians. Yeah, Cricket Statisticians and Historians. Um, yeah. Both my recent books, the, 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 the Game Taken Seriously, but also my biography of uh, one of Yorkshire's uh, and England's most important professional cricketers of the 19th century, Tom Emmett, uh, were both uh, published by the, the ACS, Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians. Um, both books are available on their, their website, which is uh, acscricket.com. Uh, um, and that's an organisation that's been going since the early 70s, uh, published and has done a huge amount of research uh, really to sort of sort out the, uh, the, the basic facts and figures of the game uh, and has supported an awful lot of research uh, and continues to do so in all, all aspects of cricket, both historical and also contemporary. Great. So an important organisation which has, you know, I think, done a lot to, to sort of build up the, uh, build up the, um, you know, the research in, the, in, 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 in cricket and, and sort of, you know, uh, all aspects of the game. Yeah, so an organisation that our listeners might be interested in, as well as, uh, of course, the BSSH as well. 
Okay, well, thank you very much, Jeremy, and I look forward to uh, listening to your podcast in due course. Uh, but now we'll go back to uh, Lisa Taylor's paper on women's rowing in the 1960s to hear the Q&A with the guests. Open the floor to any questions if anyone's got anything initially. Just on, on I thought it was fascinating that I, I know I had no connection between Patricia and Stuart McKenzie. Uh, and I'm just interested because my understanding of what I know about him is that um, he was always regarded as something of an iconoclast and mischievous if not and, and very divisive as well because um as i understand really back in his competing days he was like a one for cat and mouse kind of racing which was not regarded as sportsmanlike. um i know funnily enough i came across something in the thames minutes from i can't remember when but it was either i can't remember whether he applied for membership or just whether it was attending an event but it was basically the committee saying you know we've said in the past he's not welcome here mm. and he's not and that's because he was such a and I just wonder that there's no, you know, because I, I would have thought that he was, you know, a, like Leander couldn't have turned him down if they'd have wanted to because, as a member because he was such a, a you know, high-achieving individual. But it's interesting because I, want, I can totally imagine that, it, you know, there was an element of him tweaking the kind of conservative, you know, things by sort of doing a favour, you know, to Penny Tutor. You know, and I thought that, that's a really interesting dynamic of him sort of as one of the more radical and difficult members you know, of a conservative, as you say, a very conservative and, you know, um, entirely ma masculine apart from social members and wives, you know, institution, you know, allowing that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think he, uh, those of you that um, aren't so much in rowing as we are, um, so Stuart McKenzie, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, was an Australian, he yeah. was naturalised um, and he, I'm sure that Penny told me stories about him, like at competitions he would um, like adjust his blades so that they look one way so that then his competition would think he was doing one thing and expect his performance to be in one way and then he'd like re-gear them so then he'd be doing a different kind of thing and yeah this cat and mouse bit I'm sure is, um, it's all part of how Penny talked about how I can imagine that there would be a, a pleasure that both of them might take in kind of um, thumbing the nose at Leander mm -hmm. really by, yeah, by being a bit more provocative and just trying, mm -hmm. to, trying to rock the boat if you like. Yeah. Um, I think I, I find their pairing very very interesting, mm. um, and they did and they travelled a lot together. Um, they quite often would go you know, drive over together and compete at lots of um, overseas events. Um, I think again in terms of recruiting male support to do that kind of stuff or even support full stop. I suspect mm. Penny would see it gender neutrally, mm. um, but probably finding anyone else that was willing to drive to East Germany with a boat on your roof, it, she probably would have struggled to find a female companion that would have done the same thing. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, the, I wouldn't underestimate the, the appeal of being able to rile conservative factions of certain institutions. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned, um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody did a lot of training and stuff, so she did a lot of running and uh, kind of yeah. gymnastics and like just uh, general exercises to build up her strength. Did you find that the women that you interviewed only did rowing, or did they do multiple sports as part of like a leisure activity? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think uh, in terms of doing other sports, um, other sports not so much. 
um, the forms their training might take were kind of different. So some of them would have come through. So Pauline, whose parents didn't come to watch her at the European Championships, um, that's a horrible way to define her, actually. <laughs> um, Pauline Rayner, who's an absolute, um, uh, a massive figure in, in rowing still. Still um, rowing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, she, uh, she had been someone that a school had done all kinds of sports. She was games captain. She was, you know, your all-around... Um, PE queen. Um, I think she did quite a lot of cross country as well. Um, had done all of that, but then when she came into rowing, then that seemed to kind of that had been her school life, and then subsequently she got into. Uh, in fact, that's why she started rowing while she was still at school. But um, there were she wasn't pursuing two sports alongside. Running is a little bit different in terms of the position it takes uh, for training. Um, I'm just trying to think of the so Penny Penny came to it having done punting, skiffing, lots of other water sports, but not really um other at that point they were still kind of much of a muchness. A lot of the clubs would offer all of those kind of things. They were kind of in the same stable. Um mostly no um in terms of playing sport, but what they were doing for training varied quite a lot. Um, which I can say more about if you're interested in that, but it's a different question, I suppose. <laughs> um, the, there's quite a lot of scepticism about training out of the boat, um, for men and for women, um, and tended to be that in the winter you might go for runs, you might um, do some gentle calisthenics maybe, um, but for the most part training was perceived as being in the boat or in rowing tanks, uh, which again, I, I'm sorry, I don't know if you're, um, how much you know about rowing tankers. Um, <laughs> it's basically like a swimming pool with a boat stuck on it that you can yeah. pretend that you're rowing in. Um, I mean, I know that's wrong for all kinds of reasons, but that's kind of how it looks and it's, <laughs> at best, that's how it smells. Um, <laughs> the, um, there's real scepticism about, um, about training, about doing um, about lifting weights uh, for men as well, um, about doing whatever press ups, running, all this stuff. Um, and there's uh, certainly prior to the war, uh, the Second World War, I should say, there's very little of that going on in men's sport. In the early 1960s, the ARA, uh, I think it's 1962 or 3, appoints um, a former PE teacher, Jim Railton, they appoint him as a national trainer. And that's like their first foray into saying maybe we need to pay some people to lead us in terms of getting better at, at rowing. I think it's interesting that they went for a national trainer before a national coach. Um, but he he was there to try and say this is how um, how you might develop body better for rowing. And that was in a way they were quite comfortable with. But it's at this point that's still very much all, all kind of in flux. To jump off of that then, because if they're employing a, a mm. national fitness coach rather, or a trainer rather than a coach, um, is that, you mentioned about the dissatisfaction at losing in international competitions, and I, um, was that something that was happening across the board, or was that dissatisfaction that the men were losing, and you feel that that was part of wanting to integrate a more successful women's team, or were the women also not being successful at international level, what's what's oh, going sorry, on? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, I wasn't sorry. about that. I apologise for that. Um, that was very much a comment about the men's sport. Um, the women uh, were largely unsuccessful internationally, more so than the men. Oh, right. uh, they had smaller entries, um, so they had, if you like, fewer chances of winning. But actually, they there were little 
um, islands of male success, but not not consistently winning. And the ARA and, and Britain kind of like to conceive of itself as the home of rowing and you know the, the leaders in the rowing worlds. And by this point, they're feeling like the lame ducks, and that's a really big problem for the ARA because they believe that you know, parts of the AMS community believe that the the old-fashioned British way of doing the sport is the right way. This is what the sport should mean, this is what it should look like, this is how it should feel. At the same time, you're like, but that should also lead to us beating everyone else. Like that should <laughs> like uh, you know, the sporting and social superiority are kind of conflated. Yeah. And actually at this point they start separating. It's like, well either you can choose to be good at sport or you can be good sports. Um the women's sport didn't really have any um, street cred to bring to the table. I suspect if they'd won more, they would have been a more attractive prospect to to the ARA um, and I think that's partly why hosting the 1960 championships was important because failing results you could at least host um, and like I say Penny's uh, was the first um, medal for well there'd been a third place in 1954 um, which wasn't really reported on as bronze medal successes kind of quite equivocally reported um, and after her there was another yeah, 15, 20 years before another medal was gained at that level. Mm -hmm. So the women's sport doesn't have credibility in terms of results, just doesn't. Men's is just very, very sporadic, very patchy. Um, and there are, I think in the men's and the women's, you have this idea of an old guard that says, this is what the sport has been and what it should be. And a more kind of, a younger, more upstart kind of community that's saying, oh, but we can still, be amateurs, we still don't want to be paid, we still want to do the sport because we love it. We also just want to be better and we want to train and we like training and all this kind of stuff. And I think having a, a national trainer in some respects is a response to that. It's a gentle, it's another kind of cautious path of progression, but it's under the same guy um, where you say, okay, let's just dip our toe in the water and see what happens if we learn a bit more about putting some of what we now know about physiology, about training, about lifting weights, about and what might make us faster in the boat. Let's try and integrate a little bit of that um, and see what see where it takes us. <coughs> it also kept it as enough of a remove that it had been a horrible failure and everyone hated it, that you weren't then going to have to fire someone you liked. It wasn't someone that was within this, within he wasn't a rower, like he never rowed. So, or I don't think he had ever at that point. He later came into coaching. Um, it wasn't someone that they were personally invested in, I don't think. Uh, certainly wasn't part of this old amateur stable. Um, so it wouldn't then be horrendously ungentlemanly to have to say, actually, this is an experiment that didn't work. But do you think this lack of international success on the men's side of things is one of the reasons that the ARA was looking at other ways to maintain control of the sport by integrating the women's section because they had felt that they had a little bit of a loss of control mm. on an international level because they weren't winning the medals anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't looked at it like that, but I will think about it. I will say that I think that's definitely the case for integrating the other men's governing body. I think getting over the class issue definitely <coughs> was um, helped by the fact that a lot of, well, a lot of professionals have been quicker than amateurs and there were lots of debates about that kind of distinctly, but that they needed, um, they needed fresh blood, they needed better competitors, they needed more people, they probably needed the subscriptions as well. So I see a lot of that in terms of the, in terms of relaxing the class boundary. I'm just not sure that the, to me, the women's sport feels more ignored than objected to. Mm -hmm. And so there's, 
the process of assimilating it is kind of different. It's not really about assuming power over something because they don't want it. And actually having integrated, then they still have a, the Women's Amateur Rowing Association becomes a Women's Amateur Rowing Committee within the ARA. Right. Same administrators kind of doing their own thing still. I wouldn't say they're definitely not culturally welcomed into the fold and not, I don't believe, directed that much by the ARA either. They don't benefit from or really get penalised by the ARA. They're just kind of under the same under the same umbrella. How t- how long does that situation persist for then? Hmm. <laughs> We're talking past tense, Raph. Um, no, I, that's a, I don't mean that. Um, so the Women's Amateur Rowing Committee that became a council um, that's disbanded in two thousand and three. Around then, might have been two thousand, but it's definitely two thousand and not later. Um, and so Anne-Marie Phelps, who was the chair of British Rowing until uh, last year, the year before, um, said that really that that had that had been there because it had always been there and it kind of carried on going, even though relations with the men's administration did get a lot tighter, and um, certainly post-lottery, that because the funding was predicated on you know, the sports being considered under the same, in the same kind of way, um, that a lot of that gap was um, was narrowed, but actually that administrative bit kind of stayed there. And then I think it was actually someone going on maternity leave, and it might even have been her, that then meant either she had to, I think it was her, because I think she either had to find a replacement to chair it, um, or, well, that's, that's what she needed to do, and actually then in conversation then she and some of the other um, senior administrators, people like um, Di Ellis, were like, well, is there a need actually? Is this not like a natural breaking point just to not have that separate body within the, within the ARA? Um, I think moving into, so in the 1970s then you, women, so Women's Rowing comes into the Olympics in 76, um, in response to that, you have a World Championship event launched three years prior to that. In response to that, you have Penny Tutor appointed as a national coach for women. I think going into the Olympics is another kind of milestone in terms of the men's administration thinking we don't want to go up onto this platform, a much higher platform than other internationals, and make fools of ourselves. I think we need a bit more structure, we need a coach, we need to be putting, putting the best foot forwards. So I'd see some stuff change at that point, not least the appointment of national coach. Um, but I, I don't know, like over that whole period, then there's there's areas in which there's more collaboration, mm-hmm. there's areas in which the women's sport remains quite distinct. Um, and I'd say it's only really with the lottery money that you're seeing meaningful integration. Okay. It's about the forces of the under to go mixed as well, isn't it? Uh, it basically, yeah. So to get their money for their money. gym, yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. To, to get the money to renovate. And against quite a strong rear guard, you know, but that was, a, uh, I remember reading that that was, a, was about 98, and it was a really stormy meeting where you had some of the, like, the old, I forget his name, who was the Cambridge Blue, who was, like, very old by that stage, <laughs> and was sort of, you know, you know, final traditions being thrown away. But, yeah, and um, I think, um, so I think, yeah, there's, the financial imperative was, was the selling point of saying, really, again, chaps, if you want your nice gym, yeah. God let some girls in, like, and I, I do think, I do think that was the tone of it. Um, I don't think that's as true of British of the ARA as no. well as or British rowing. I actually no. think that the administration is more progressive, certainly than it looks from the outside, um, and that's true now, and it probably was true um, much earlier. Um, 
but yeah, I mean there are. I think often you see in women's sport, there's usually there's usually a compelling reason for the men's sport to make concessions to the women's sport or to try to develop those links. There's usually something in it for that community yeah. because that's the community that tends already to have the power and the resource. So, and without the what feels like maybe should be a more natural impulse to say, well, why shouldn't we collaborate? It's like, well, why should we? But also, from the women's side, why should we? Because in other sports, um, and obviously my particular expertise is about cricket, um, there's pushback from the women all the way along, saying, no, we want to be, um, we want to run it ourselves. Um, we think that if we go in with the men, then we'll just be swallowed up. And it's very important to us, and it's at the heart of what we do, that we do it for women. Um, and obviously they then say that there's not a feminist motivation, but we can interpret it as that. Um, but I find it absolutely breathtaking um, that the, the WARA just go, yeah, sure, we'll fold in with you, it's fine. Like, unanimous. And at such an early point as well, compared mm. with other women's sports, that seems really striking and quite surprising to me. Yeah, no, I, I use the word unanimous. Like, I, my feeling is, so the chair at this point is still a lady called Amy Gentry, who's a um, really dominant voice, um, not only in terms of delivering the sport um, since the 1920s, but also in terms of the archive. Like, she was a prolific writer of stuff, keeper of stuff. So a lot of the things that survive are in her name or are kind of, you know her reports um she says i think in 1970 she writes a retrospective she liked retrospectives mm -hmm. and she says actually i think it was it was the right thing to do and i'm glad that it happened um but i was very proud of what we achieved as an independent body um my reading between the lines of a lot of the reports that are around i suspect there was the clutch of women that have been involved in the interwar period who did um endure for a long time I suspect there would be more hesitation in that respect. I, I don't sense that from the, the, the newer recruits, if you like. And Penny in her interview suggested that it was um, a woman called Eleanor Lester who made this all happen. And she, so she had rowed prior to the war, but she was still relatively young at that point. Um, but she was a university woman, albeit from a more modest background. Um, and I think probably was more in the, the kind of the page, the ARA um, chair that I mentioned, and Nichols Mould, which was um, about seeing a need for for something to change. Um, I don't, I didn't get the sense from any of the women that I spoke to that there was any, they just weren't bothered about the administration, none of them really engaged with it at all, none of them remembered there being an amalgamation, mm. apart from Penny, who was then an administrator, so would have been more attuned. Um, and. I just think it's a non-event. Like I, I wonder, in terms of what the sport actually felt like to be in, if you go to the races you go to, I just don't know how much that would have felt like it was even a thing. So, in a lot of other women's sports, the administrators are the players, and in this, and you're saying that maybe something that's a bit distinctive about rowing is that the administrators are over here and the and the rowers are over here. What's, what's interesting is that in the interwar period, they are the same people, right. and post-war, it's the same people that were administrators still administrating different competitors. And mm. I, uh, you kind of have this old guard, yeah. new bit kind of playing out very clearly in the women's mm. sport, and I confess I don't know enough about who was on the ARA committees at this point to know whether that's matched in the men's. Um, but I think that 
Yeah. So there's a bit of a generational divide opening up. Yeah. Which does happen in women's cricket too, but much later. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I I, I would observe that. Um, and I also... If, there's a lot of a feeling of helplessness. Like these are the women that are competing internationally at this stage are the ones that are um, are paying to do it themselves. You have the the administrators saying we're really grateful that these women are going to at least fly the flag. Yeah. And so the dynamic of power between the athletes and the admin is kind of is a bit unusual mm -hmm. anyway in that respect mm -hmm. because the administrators don't have any. They don't have a whip. They don't. They'd rather there's someone. The reports would suggest they'd rather someone goes mm -hmm. and at least shows willing for Britain. Than not send anyone, but they can't send anyone. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a. I suppose I'm wondering as well whether if they knew that um, as part of the amalgamation, um, they were going to just keep basically doing the same thing, that that was less that that bothered them less. Whereas in other similar processes, basically um, most of the women just disappear from the administration completely. It sounds like this was a much. Um, more kind of smoother transition in a way and that it didn't ne necessarily very much change things on the ground yeah i think that's true and i wonder if that's partly because it happened in this period rather than later yeah is that like i'm saying that these positions aren't really entrenched so it's not saying oh we're going to it wasn't we weren't massively celebrating bringing the women's sport into the men's or commiserating being women moving into the men's sport yeah. just think it's like well yeah okay like we need basically for international competition they'd already had set up this slightly weird um, administrative bit that allowed women to compete effectively as the ARA or through the ARA in the 1950s. So they had this weird separate little kind of committee that functioned as something that FISA, the international governing body, would recognise. There'd already been this kind of nominal change anyway that hadn't made any difference at all, for better and worse actually. And I wonder if for the women's community whether it's like, well, not we haven't got anything to lose, not that they want to be subsumed, but actually there's no need for it to be subsuming, it's just means that we might have slightly more opportunity to um well to for communication, you get access to some of the platforms the ARA had, um, to possibly have mixed regattas, to mm. all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I think I do think it's interesting and I wonder if because it was so early it was less <coughs> the sporting administration wasn't what it would be by the 1990s yeah. when a lot of isn't other it, sports go isn't to Isn't it to do with the economics of the sports? I mean, cricket is a very, it's a professional sport. There's a lot of money at stake in cricket. Um, whereas in rowing, I'm assuming that nobody's in rowing to get rich, are they? Or <laughs> even, or, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, <laughs> no, but, but Easy quip, which I really rejects. <laughs> if you look at professional cricketers, if, if they're, governing body is not looking after their interests or is diverted into looking after rival cricketers, then that's a big deal for them. Yeah. And so they're going to be much more protective of the of their control of the structure of the game. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Um, but again, probably it was different in the sixties compared to later on, mm. like just in terms of sporting yeah. um the economic sport more broadly. Actually at that point you don't have cricket cricket's pretty significant in the 60s. I'm is it, is it yeah. comparable to it in the 90s, yeah? Yeah, I th okay. in fact, I think it, okay. yeah, okay. yeah, because, well, I mean, if you're comparing it to football, say, but, yeah, I don't know. Mm. I suppose I'm thinking a bit more from the women's perspective, mm. um, about what they stand to gain slash lose, and how they're kind of stacking that up in their own heads. Another question. Mm, 
Um, so you said that like the Women's Council Committee and the ARA has been dissolved since like 2000-ish. Um, so that's nearly 20 years ago. Um, what is the gender representation in the ARA committee and are women's uh, rowing needs being met? Or is there like a need for another kind of committee to represent women? Currently. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's called British Rowing now because we got rid of the word answer a while ago because we're not very comfortable with it quite rightly in lots of ways. Um, so British Rowing actually is quite unusual for having had a lot of female leadership, which again is, is kind of baffling given a lot of the other stuff that happens in the sport. Um, Penny Tudor, who I've been talking about, is one example of that and a really early professional female coach actually. But um, so the ARA had a female, um, a female chair effectively from the 1980s, late 80s, Dialis came in and then was um, succeeded by another woman, Anna Marie Phelps. Um, and they, I believe, a couple of years ago, um, they won an award for the amount of female leadership they had actually. Compared to other sporting governing bodies historically, they have actually overperformed in that respect. Um, that uh, coaching is still horrendous. There's still there's one um, female elite coach, um, and actually going to Tokyo 2020 and it's the same amount of athletes. That is the first time, but the the numbers of athletes have never been that different. Um, coaching there's still very much a, a barrier there. Participation by women in terms of actually doing the sport is almost 50-50 um, in the last five years or so. It's come to being about, I think, 55, 45, something like that. Um, not used to having other people that know rowing anymore. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's good. It's, it's making me make sure that I'm correcting what I'm saying. Um, and actually, in terms of competition, then more women enter more races than men. So at the level of participating in the sport, and if you look at that as an indicator of women's interests being represented, um, that's fairly healthy. Likewise, at the executive level, over the last, well, the last 20, 30 years, actually, um, there's, Anne-Marie Phelps, when she stepped down, um, she has been replaced by a man, there's still quite a lot of senior women, um, or, yeah, senior administrators that are women. Um, I wonder what other people in the room think about whether there's a need to represent women's interests separately from men's. I feel that there is a danger to that, um, that if you have a committee that deals with women's rowing, that unless that's of the same magnitude as the committee that deals with rowing, then that's kind of problematic, and that actually they should be, um, that should be one and the same. Um, it's just that the like International Olympic Committee has stated mm. that committees should be made of 40% women and most countries, even when they've got high participation of female athletes, are failing that. Yeah. So that it seems like growing is an exception. It ha definitely has been. In terms of the proportion, um, yeah, it has been. Um, and actually there's quite a lot of women in rowing that have got, so Dame Catherine Goja, for example, mm -hmm. who went on to UK sports, um, quite a lot of um, senior female rowers have gone into other sporting areas. Anne-Marie Phelps chaired the committee, the, um, investigation into British cycling, for example. And she's just started at the British yeah, Horse Racing Association. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's chief executive there. Yeah. Is, is that to do with the class profile of yeah, people who yeah, take part? <laughs> it's a lot easier for a middle class woman to have ambitions towards um, you know, being, being on committees, running things. I am sympathetic to that point of view. Um, I'm not straight. I mean. Um, she's a good politician, isn't she? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you really <laughs> 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 um, 
Um, I'm, I'm just going to have to think about that for a second, Jeff, because I, I struggle with the, um, the easy, well, rowing is posh, so actually lots of these things are easier. I do struggle with that characterisation, but there is a lot of it where that is very much true, uh, or has been true. Um, I think that if you look at how gender might play out in that context internally, so if you look at the quote-unquote the rowing community, if you want to characterise that as exclusionary on the basis of class and quite conservative, you might say that's a harder environment for a woman to then assume a senior role within. If you look at investment banking, you could say the same thing, kind of. Um, if you say, well, these the women that are accepted in that group can accelerate higher, yeah, okay, I've got some sympathy for that. And I would say it would be fair to say that Anne-Marie Phelps would fall into that category. Um, Dialis, probably not quite so easily. Um, Penny Tudor, not quite so easily. Um, and she, uh, she would be quite a different kind of um, politician to Dialis, for example. If you look at personalities and the kind of personality traits that I think you're suggesting might help you accelerate to leadership positions. I don't know. Um, there's, no real, there's no reason why um, women, though, shouldn't administer men's sport. Um, but I think it's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned that um, women's sport is different to men's sport mm. in many ways and therefore needs it's a needs consideration on its own terms and on its own merits. Uh, I wonder if some of that is your in-and-out cricketer because if you look at the metrics and the competitions and the way that the sport is delivered and funded and all that kind of stuff, in rowing then all the money comes through on Olympic medals, right? So the metrics for funding are such that medals don't have a sex, that the sport actually doesn't have a sex at the point of getting funded. So, and that definitely did, um, was a huge benefit to women's rowing in the immediate post-lottery period and more recently, um, in terms of what was seen as important because, well, for lots of reasons. but. I wonder if you're looking at quite distinct competitions, if you're looking at separate World Cups or different structures, different administrations. I wonder if that is different than when you're, as rowing is, both participation and performance is funded on the Olympic cycle by Olympic metrics. Yeah, that, that does, yeah, I can see that that would make a difference. I think in terms of cricket, um, yeah, it's obviously, it's, it's different competitions, it's... Um, vastly different prize money it's um, if you're a girl then you often come into the sport later um, so therefore um, coaching girls and women's cricket is a very different proposition I think that that's um, without question and the fact that um, at the elite levels it's only just gone professional so women are kind of struggling with that transition um, there's all the and the fact that at the, the domestic level women's cricket is totally amateur whereas um, and it's at the domestic level, men's cricket is totally professional. Um, you know, it's just they are two vastly different entities, and to just put them in together and say, well, it's all just cricket um, in an ideal world, of course, but that's not the world that we're currently in, I suppose. And it sounds like perhaps rowing is um, a different proposition in the sense of being more equitable in many of those regards, but I don't have enough knowledge of the context. I don't want to hijack your paper to talk about women's cricket any longer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the comparisons are like I think they are important to look at other sports because there are to me there are a lot of things that are quite 
unique about rowing mm. um, and lots of weird that to me certainly initially were quite weird anomalies um, not least where you see bits of progression or progression, progressiveness progressive thinking progressive um, structures I suppose in this environment where so much of it is actually really not progressive at all where you have clubs that don't admit women until 1999 like that kind of stuff that actually it's kind of it's both of those things mm. um, I think the point about money is a really important one um, there is there's still very very limited um, appeal uh, commercially of rowing um, and yeah you're not you're not in rowing for the money um, there's not any part and there's not you don't really have the the pathway either during being an athlete or out of it that's really going to facilitate that um neither are you going to get huge amounts of tv rights or the coverage has changed quite a lot in the last even the last four years i'd say the level of coverage and the way it's covered um, and the platforms it's available on has changed a lot and i wonder how that will play out in the next five ten fifteen years um I would see money as a massive influence in terms of decisions that are made across the board. Um, and for rowing, I think because all rowing clubs are poor, basically, or almost all rowing clubs are poor, um, present company accepted a little bit. Tennis <laughs> <laughs> uh, rowing club, uh, some of the more established, uh, Leander, um, those kind of institutions, just because of their heritage, their legacies, the, um, the amount of people that people of means that would probably recognise them in wills, all that kind of stuff. There are some clubs that are like that, but the overwhelming majority are are not. Mm. Um, meanwhile, the money for the sport comes in, like I say, judged on on a gender blind metric. Mm. Just on, on that, because in terms of the period you're covering, this whole sort of thing of like the, the decision to merge the... Uh, the WARA to merge in. I, I was thinking of that in terms of like what the federation was doing at that stage versus what uh, women's experience was going to be embedded in their club. Mm. And uh, you know, it's interesting because at that point, the the ARA, there's no sponsorship money. There's no the thirty years for lottery money. So their 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 income that they're dispersing is purely subs income and. Um, and club subscription income, a capitation fee for the clubs, which presumably they're largely dispersing to help run regattas to a certain extent. I don't know what I mean. It's all run on a shoestring. The area. Yeah, mm. and 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 in terms of what their functions are, one there, they have the the ownership of uh, selecting international crews and and that the, the affiliation to uh, to FISA, mm. and then also they're setting the rules of racing and the broader rules as well but in terms of like what where most of the action is it's going to be in clubs and university clubs now I, I, I mean i don't know the answer to this and maybe you do but the, what the what is the experience of because uh, most of you know most of the men's clubs have their origins in the 19th century and whether they were previously national ara mm. or ara clubs a lot of them have their own clubhouses and boats the women, there are a few um, sort of women's clubs which have their own premises. So I assume Furnival have their own premises at that point, and I don't know if there are any on the lead and, and but elsewhere in the country. I don't know, but I'm assuming that most women's clubs were probably either renting space in men's clubs 
um, all were in boatyards or things like that, Bippins, you know, up the Chiswick, which was one where I think the United Universities were at that point. So in terms of like the decision to merge the federations is one thing, but an actual fact, you know, that in terms of that you're talking about the money side of it, if you know, they were looking to sort of perhaps, you know, improve the, the, the viability of the administration and have a bit more money coming in to organise regattas and stuff. But they've still got the the individual women's clubs have still got the great task of how do you um, how do they make themselves solvent and able to buy boats which are suited for you know the, the women's weight crew and, and things like that. So that money side of things I was I was thinking about is going to be playing itself out at club level very much. So yeah, I think that's true. Um, okay, there's quite a lot. Of the... yeah, sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. It's just uh, my knees go through that kind of point by point. Um, the regattas bit is interesting because um, the only difference when the when the WARA was formed, the only difference in their constitution compared to the ARA was that it would undertake to organise regattas for women. And I'd say this is mainly because the numbers are, by comparison, very small. The clubs, women's clubs, aren't big enough to realistically be hosting um, events that are going to draw in um, those numbers. Um, and the number of small women's clubs was quite large. Uh, meaning that if every club then wanted to host a regatta because you'd want to because it would help you raise money, then actually you're going to compete against each other and kind of cannibalise each other um, if you can cannibalise to death. Um, it's not the other way around, right? Um, but that wasn't... So the women's ARA has always undertaken to organise centrally regattas, and the ARA absolutely did not do that. Mm. Um, so you had individual clubs would take responsibility for that, and some of those were... Well, actually, Henley's different, but mm. Marlow, um, big big regattas um, that were organised, that were effectively national, yeah. of national appeal and organised for the good of the sport nationally, yeah. um, but also very much to the benefit of the club that hosted. Um, and I think that one of the really important things about merging was that then that would um, either, I don't think there's anything that said that men's clubs couldn't offer men, women's races. I don't think there was anything in legislation that said that, but there would definitely not be an appetite to do that. Um, and I think that in merging, I suspect that the opportunity to um, open some of those events up and to just give, basically for there to be more competitive platforms for women would have been seen as one of the goals. And Paige, um, the ARA administrator that I've talked about a few times, he certainly by 1965, 66, um, openly kind of advocates for more men. He kind of says, oh, look at these great examples of men's clubs that have decided to um, offer some women's events their regattas. We want to see more of that. Um, the equipment in the boat houses, yeah, a lot of them were shared, um, shared facilities. Uh, they, I mean, the sharing, becoming part of the same club. Actually, I think some of that is where you see a lot more. Certainly in the seventies and eighties, yeah. that's where a lot of the the stronger tussles are because the women are often yeah. getting the old cast off boats that are too heavy even for the men they kind of talk about being a pee on a drum like they're kind of you know <laughs> perched way on top of the water because they're for 85 kilo men and they're 50 kilos um i think at a club level you see either more squabbles or much better integration you see yeah. some people uh, one of the quotes i had up earlier um or maybe actually no one of them did talk about this a bit but there's another one that talks about how um, how great it's been to integrate women into the club. They've brought life, they've brought energy, they make people go to the bar because there's a better social environment. 
Um, again, with this kind of equivocal double vision, then he also talks about how, you know, they're um, also great at making the tea and raising, you know, and the best fundraisers we've ever had, and they smell better. And you're like, well, <laughs> like on the one hand, it's great that you think that this has made such a, a most of the most of the report is saying, or the letter I should say, is talking about how much better club life is when it's mixed and how positive that is both for men and for male and for female members. It's just that then it ends on this kind of quippy note which is like and they smell better and it's it, I just think that's kind of to appeal to it just yeah it's going to make you know the old school kind of laugh like it's it, it's trying to make that a more comfortable position rather than it being a radical political one um and say oh yeah you know I, I, I still get it guys like I still want you know still understand what women really are for um but also they can come rowing mm. like it's it's really um and those two things sit alongside each other quite comfortably in a lot of the stuff you see written and quite uncomfortably to read in some respects. Um, but, I mean, sharing in the club space, I just think on the one hand, it has this potentially very beneficial bit where you see, um, so actually you mentioned River Lee, there was Stuart Ladies Writing Club that yeah, was down there. that's the one I was thinking um, of. And um, uh, they more, they did earlier, did more heavier training than a lot of other women's clubs. And they, some of the women that I spoke to that rode there in the 70s definitely talked about the benefits of training alongside the men, that they would just basically invite themselves to men's circuits and all this kind of stuff because it was harder, because it was, and, you know, they could do that. Um, and that that raised their level. And there's something that Penny Tutor talked about a lot was that the level in men's rowing was just higher. And so there was a, um, there was a benefit to being around that that would raise... It, gave you the opportunity to raise your level as an athlete, but also you could expect better provision, you could expect better media coverage, for example. Will's done, she talks about that. Um, but in so many respects that that environment gives you the opportunity to lift rather than to be left behind. Because realistically, if you're your own women's club, you're probably in cast-off men's boats anyway. Yeah. Um, because that's what you'll be able to afford to buy. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if, yeah, maybe that comes back to what we've already been talking about, is actually there's... A sense of feeling there's quite a lot to gain in terms of yeah, um, soft resource, like yeah. just yeah. aspiration um, and a more potentially a more competitive environment. I don't know. We're talking about competitive environment though, so I found it really interesting when you said earlier that the um, women from this period, from the 60s, when they talk about how they see mm. rowing now and with the lottery funding, that that's not something that they would be interested in engaging with. Um, when, because I know you've been doing lots of oral history interviews with people from different periods, do, and you kind of indicate that you so, see that changing a bit later. When does that start to change? So, mm. where is it that the women who didn't have the resources kind of look now and say, "I wish I had had those resources," compared to what you've seen here in the sixties? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I am. Um, uh, the two examples that spring to mind, and forgive me, I have to do a bit of storytelling to get to an actual answer. Oh, yeah. um, so there are two women that rode basically throughout the 1990s, um, Gwyn and Miriam, who you'll know. Um, and Miriam, Miriam basically said, 1990s, decade of rags to riches, like, excellent. Um, and partly because they had, um, they were fighting for every penny, basically, to, and they were, you know, working full time. Uh, they had actually quite generous employers in some respects. And I know I've said in this forum before that I find it really interesting how... Uh, I observed in the 80s and 90s that actually there's quite a lot of um, 
uh, not sponsorship, but a lot of what now we would probably call sponsorship in terms of support um, from their employers. But that they would then kind of see the ability to go to Sydney and it, or the ability to go full stop as this phenomenal opportunity. Um, and also that they were, by that point, they pretty much moved into a more or less full-time model of training anyway, even though they were also working full-time. Um, and they'd been part of this transitional period where they had had little chunks of money coming in. They had benefited, or Miriam certainly, I think both of them, um, they were in a crew that had got, a, for the time, a really high amount of private sponsorship from an Irish um, an Irish man who decided to kind of invest in them over a two-year period going up towards the Olympic Games, which meant they could actually commit to having a coach for that period and could, you know, um, a lot of that stuff could get a lot easier. And I think maybe they kind of, they were spanning this period of having nothing at all and having everything. Um, in that period, that's also Atlanta where we had terrible Olympic results where as Steve Graves um, medal was the only medal that was won at that Olympics by Great Britain at all, uh, or the only gold, only medal? Only medal, I think. Um, basically a really, um, a really low bar in terms of the results because there was kind of all this scrambling around seeing what needed to be done, trying to make it happen, trying to find enough money to um, get a roof over their head. Gwyn talks about sleeping on sofas for years, trying to um, you know, make, make the own dream kind of happen. Um, I think that for them then getting the money was almost unequivocally a great thing. Mm. Again though, actually the lottery money hasn't been the same, it wasn't the same thing in 1998 or 2000 as it is now. No. And the systems, if you look at the degree of um, control and professionalisation in GB rowing now, that's not what they were coming into. Um, and actually some of the athletes that have rowed more recently, um, one in particular that I'm thinking of, um, managed to, she found loss of that very oppressive um, and quite difficult to perform in actually. And she said that she was delivering her best performances when she was managing to be outside of that system. Again, she was quite unusual for being good enough to uh, to manage to do that, I suspect she was basically said uh, she was very modest. It doesn't. It's not going to sound like this when I say this, but she was coming top of the singles trial. She was winning. She was performing better than everybody else, and so had enough kind of um, enough weight behind her to say, "I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to train by myself or you know with the university or whatever for X amount of time and just come to you for these key weeks in the year." That's really unusual, and actually, it's something that probably GB rowing don't. I probably shouldn't put on record because they probably don't <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that. That is the case. Um, that that has that exceptions are made because their public line very much is that no exceptions are made our way or the highway, um, and that has been successful. In the sense of winning medals, there's also a lot of debate about, um, you know, the the broad implications of that for athletes as human beings, um, and I think. Yeah, I suppose I'm saying really that there are people within the system now that have, quote-unquote, have everything that find that not dissatisfactory, but that recognise the problems of becoming cabbages. Um, that it's such a uh, singular focus could be quite damaging. Um, most, yeah, the 1960s and 70s, and probably actually even through the 80s, there's a lot of joy seems to come through doing their own thing, through being, you know, the, the, the women take a huge amount of pride in, the, in what they were able to achieve and how they did it kind of on their terms, what they, you know, the support they were able to find, the stuff they were able to do. Um, 
but I am talking to the fortunate ones. I'm talking to the women who did, you know, necessarily, if I'm talking to them, they did vote for Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of people that were more on the periphery or that were even a little bit further away from that that would see more, that would have perceived higher barriers to being able to pursue that kind of a sporting um, career lacking the, the support that is now available. I wonder if my sample is a bit self-selecting in terms of not only getting to the point of having road for Great Britain, but also in then effectively volunteering to talk to me. That it's not surprising to me that they might want to tell stories about how proud they are of the way in which they did things and to defend it. That's the problem with oral history though, is you only get the people to volunteer that actually, um, you know, had easy, you know, relatively easy access to something. So I've done some with like women's indoor football. I'm not going to hear from the people who didn't play football about these competitions mm. because they're not going to come forward because they feel like they don't have anything yeah. to say. I mean, I say that's a characteristic for oral history yeah. rather than a problem with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a skew, absolutely. Mm. Found photo Miriam when she that, so in terms of the sponsorship because that I think that was her employer yeah, wasn't it? Was it? yeah. Um, so she and that was, was like an informal it, thing that she yeah she managed to I think it, the story I heard was that her boss saw um, when she was supposed to be on a sick day saw uh, was walking oh, over really? Tamasmith Bridge and saw her scumming. Uh, <laughs> I <haven't laughs> heard that story, but I do like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's actually the sponsorship, there's a whole a whole other set of storylines around yeah. sponsorship and securing your own and then sticking stuff on the boat and not being allowed to and then putting it on literally as you're pushing off the Olympic final and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Lots of jiggery-pokery because cause it kind of had to be and actually it was definitely better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Like, so, yeah, no one faced any penalty for it. In fact, mm. the balance it ended up. Well, anyway, lots of storylines about sponsorship, but probably for another time. Probably for can another I time. A stupid question before I um, I can infer what it means, but what do you mean by cabbages? Oh, sorry, you might have missed. Um, yeah, a quote. Um, so there's one of my. I saw that someone referring to like a, the was it the Hungarians or something. Yeah, like basically, cabbages. yeah. But um, like I could kind yeah. of guess what they're a Bulgarian. Oh, there it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just said, doesn't need to cover it again. Previous one. There we go. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm using it as shorthand, but yeah, they, they, so this is part of a longer bit where she's talking about um, just that the mentality was kind of different and that the social interactions were, I mean, they, there's also a lot of talk about the amount of drugs that were being taken mm-hmm. by countries other than ours, um, and a feeling that these were either machines or, um, or just doped individuals, that like they were um, not interacting in a normal human mm. social way um and yeah the, i mean so is that something that's commonly used in rowing or is it just in this reference uh, sorry is which, it like a phrase that's commonly used or the like, cabbages yeah uh, i wouldn't say so no oh, like okay. i i think uh, i yeah i mainly use it because it, it to me it really like yeah it's pithy like it works for me um but i don't know it's not like a as far as I know, it's not. Uh, it doesn't mean anything okay. beyond what it means within yeah. that within that sentence. Okay, I think we've probably better wrap up there. Thank you very much, Lisa.